welcome to Orchard Community Church Sunday Morning Podcast. We are glad you are here to learn, grow, and deepen your relationship with Christ. This week's message is brought to you by Pastor Matt Hoyt. I want to begin this morning with the story of a $185 million hyphen. You know, a hyphen, those little dashes that we use in text. Well, on July 22nd, 1962, the Mariner 1 rocket was set to launch from Cape Canaveral. It was aboard the Atlas rocket, just as it was taking off. And and as it took off, it looked like everything was just going fantastic. But Mariner 1 was headed out to space to fly by Venus. But when the rocket launched, something did go wrong shortly after takeoff, and it began to veer off course. And ground control tried to correct the problem, but they were not able to. And so eventually, they had to hit the self-destruct button to prevent it from falling into a populated area. So the rocket and the satellite were destroyed, and there was, of course, a big investigation, as there always would be, into exactly what went wrong, and your mind automatically glows to some kind of a mechanical malfunction. But what they found was that the problem was indeed not a mechanical malfunction. It was the lack of a single hyphen in the computer launch program of this rocket. And you might think that a hyphen really wouldn't have that much impact, but it did. In any case, leaving out this one simple notation took down an entire rocket and a satellite at a cost adjusted for today, because this was 1962, at a cost of $182 million for a hyphen. Well, today we're wrapping up our series of messages on the book of James, as we've talked about James as a practical book. And in talking about that, we focus on the fact that James is interested in real people living out real faith every day. And it has a very practical approach, a a down-to-earth approach that really resonates with people. But as practical as James is, we've also talked about the fact that it's also a very spiritual book, that it teaches a spirituality that you live. It's not about going to seek secret knowledge on some mountaintop or the need to become a super saint of some kind. No, James teaches a, a spirituality that every one of us can live. It teaches a practical kind of spirituality that can grow up right in the lives of real people right here and right now. And really the promise of James is that if we will put our faith into practice each day, we'll seek to do that, uh, the promise of God is that he'll grow us spiritually in some wonderful ways. Now our passage for this morning is on prayer. And prayer is really an essential part of our spiritual lives. In fact, the great theologian John Calvin said this about prayer. He said, it's the chief exercise of our faith by which we daily receive God's benefit. And what what Calvin was saying is it's the primary way we live this faith and the primary way we build our relationship with God. That's how how practical prayer is. It's this foundational piece to our spiritual lives. And yet, just like that little hyphen, I think it's easy for us to forget just how important prayer is. And just like that hyphen, if it's left out of a rocket launch code, can have big impact. Leaving prayer out of our lives can have a big impact on us. It can cause our spiritual life to crash and burn. Or maybe it can cause our spiritual life to never really launch off the ground and go anywhere in the first place. So as we've touched on, James is a practical book. 
And that really should be a clue to us about how James views prayer, that he's going to spend some time on it. James sees prayer as a very practical part of living our faith each day. I think we also should note that this is the subject out of all the subjects that James has touched on that he chooses to close the book on. And I think that also speaks to just how important James believes prayer is. So right now what I want us to do is take James at his word and pray as we begin our our message. Lord, we just invite your presence among us. We we want to pray and lift up our hearts to you and, and pray that you'd open our hearts, that you would make us receptive to your word, that you would speak wisdom to us about prayer, about the difference that it can make in the way that our spiritual lives uh, grow and mature. So by the power of your spirit, Lord, be at work in and amongst us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to be looking at our last passage in the book of James. Today we are wrapping up this series. We're going to be looking at James 5, verses 15 through 20. So go ahead and uh, follow along if you've got your Bible with you or your Bible app. Verse 12 says this, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayers of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, someone should bring that person back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Well, as I mentioned a few weeks ago when we looked at the passage just before this, Verse 12, to begin with, has always been this verse that scholars don't quite know what to do with. And the big question has been, does it belong with the previous passage and what James had to say about patience, or does it belong here in this passage about prayer? Or is it a separate subject altogether? Problem is that on the face of it, this verse about oaths, that's what it's about, swearing oaths, it doesn't really seem connected to either of these topics, and it also seems really strange that James would just throw out one singular line about an unrelated topic. And so different Bible translations have put it with either passage and no one's been completely sure where it should go. Our scripture that we use, the translation NIV, puts it with the previous passage, but I actually believe that it belongs with this passage, which is why we're covering it today. And I'm going to explain just why. So let's begin. In James' times, swearing oaths was very common. And an oath served as a confirmation that what you were saying or promising was true 
or that you would do what you said you would do. And so right away, when it comes to oaths, we recognize that there's an issue of honesty, right? Because why else you, would you need to swear an oath if, in fact, people weren't sure that you were going to do what you said that you were going to do? But it's actually a lot more complicated than that. You see, there was some rules about oaths back in those days that the Jewish rabbis had made. And the rule was kind of this. If you swore by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or, or anything like that, the oath was, in fact, non-binding. But if you swore an oath directly to God, then it was binding. So those were kind of the rules. But knowing those rules, what had developed was this really tricky and crooked system where people would make these long, elaborate, religious-sounding oaths that sounded binding, but in fact were not binding. And they were a way to kind of wiggle out from things. And so the whole system of oaths was riddled with deception and dishonesty. So that's reason one why James doesn't like it. Now, another problem with oaths is that many oaths in that time included self-cursing. And, and we know what that is, right? It's like, may my word be good or may God strike me dead. You know, that's what people would, would say, that kind of thing. Or like the kids used to say, swear to God, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Do you remember that one? So many oaths were self-cursing. And this might seem innocent to us, but it's, it's really kind of awful if you think about it, to drag God into your cruddy little oath and try to make God a party to what it is that you're wanting and then to suggest that someone he made and loves should be harmed maybe by him if they don't keep their word. It's, it's really not a, a good thing at all. So for these reasons, oaths weren't a good practice and, and James urges us not to take part in them. And in fact, what James says here mirrors what Jesus says in the book of Matthew. Jesus says, don't take oaths just be an honest person and let your yes be yes and your no be no. So James really uh, mirrors that. But the real core problem with or oaths beyond those two things was this. They point in the wrong direction mostly because they look to us for the most part rather than to God. And many times people are still inclined to swear oaths today. But today, much of the time, it's when we're in a jam, isn't it? Instead of looking to God, they'll swear an oath on their, mother, their dead mother's grave, you know, or some other weird thing like that. Now, the other thing that people do with oaths is that sometimes people will make an oath to God, but what they're really trying to do is manipulate God, right? God, if you just give me this, I will become a monk, you know, or... or like the businessman who was late for an important meeting and he was circling the building and he couldn't find a parking space. And so finally, in desperation, he prayed, God, take pity on me. If I find a parking space, I will go to church every Sunday for the rest of my life and I will give up drinking. <laughs> Miraculously, a, a parking space appeared and the guy took it and then he said, never mind, God, I found one. <laughs> and of course, that's a joke, but isn't that just about how it goes? with people making these kinds of goofy oaths wanting to get out of a jam. So again, the thing about oaths is they're often dishonest, 
We don't intend to keep them. And, and really, for the most part, even if they seem to have religious content, they're really not looking to God. They're really mostly looking to us. So I think that it's in contrast to this kind of earthly, worldly approach that James now, in verse 13, begins to talk about prayer. Because notice in verse 13, he says, Is any of you in trouble? You should pray. No oaths. No bargaining, no fancy words, just pray and rely on God. And that's the move that I think James is making here by including oaths. Now, James, the word he uses for trouble right here generally means to, uh, suffer difficulty. And it's a word that's not related to illness. He's going to touch on illness, but for the, for the first part here, he's not talking about illness. He's just talking about when life gets hard. So when life gets hard, James says, pray. Then you'll notice he also says, if anyone is happy, let him sing songs of praise. Now, a song sung by faith is worship and really, when we sing songs of praise by faith, they are prayers to God. I think it was Martin Luther, in speaking about worship, he said, he who sings prays twice. I actually think that's one of the beautiful things about music, is they can be prayers for us, especially sometimes when we don't have words. We can go and come to church and sing a prayer that, that, that maybe speaks to God the thoughts and feelings of our hearts when we, we couldn't maybe articulate them at all or that well. And so singing songs of, of praise really is a kind of prayer. So James is saying, look, when life is troubling and difficult, pray. And when it's good, don't forget to pray and thank God as well. And you know, it's interesting as parents, we teach our children to say thank you, don't we? Because it's the right thing to do, because it's the polite thing to do, but it's really interesting how easy it is to forget to do that same thing with God, isn't it, our Heavenly Father? So verse 14, James touches on another key of prayer, a time for praying for prayer. He says, is anyone among you sick? Remember, he dealt with the non-illness-related trouble. Now he comes to illness. And he says, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And what James is referring to here is an ancient practice of the church to anoint the sick with oil and to pray over them. It's a ritual of prayer and faith for those who are ill. And James is focusing on the church here, but really when people are sick, we're all called to pray over them. We're all called to respond to one another in that way. But because our passage touches on this today, we thought, well, you know, if you're going to talk about prayer, you should pray, which we're going to do. But if you're going to talk about anointing with oil, we should anoint people with oil. So today when you receive communion, after you've done that, there's going to be a station over in this corner and back in that corner. And if you would like to go back there and receive a prayer for healing and be anointed with oil, you can do that. And I want us to remember that healing is not just physical. Healing can be emotional. Healing can be spiritual. Some of the greatest healing we need is the healing of emotions and damaged memories. So if there's anywhere in your life that, that there's been hurt or wounding, I want you to go and think about being prayed for and anointed with oil in that way because I think there can be something really powerful about that. Now, verse 15 it's easy to misunderstand because it says prayers offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. And the problem is we know that that doesn't always happen. 
right? We know that there are times that we pray for folks and they don't get better. So what are we to do with James' words here? How do we make sense of them? I think the answer is back in chapter one. James in chapter one says this about when we pray and ask things for God. James 1, 6 and 7. He says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave blown on the sea, blown and tossed about by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from God. What I think James is saying here is just like he did in chapter 1. I think he's calling us to pray without doubting that God really can and really does heal people. Now, when we pray for things, particularly for healing, I think there's two things that we always need to keep in mind. And this is really important. I've talked about it before. But the first thing is this. We need to hold these things together. The first thing is what James says here in chapter one. James says, when you pray for something, you should ask and not doubt and believe that God can give what you've asked for. And so we have to hold on to that. What good is it to pray if we don't believe that God can actually do what it is that we're praying for? So that's really important to pray without doubting. At the same time, however, there's another key principle in scripture, and it comes from the Lord's Prayer. And that's where Jesus says, pray thy will be done. God, your will be done, not my will be done. And so we've got to hold on to both of these things. I believe that God can give what I've asked for, and yet I know that it is God's will that I am praying for, and that sometimes what God's going to do is not what I want for God to do. And if we don't hold on to both of these things at the same time, we can get ourselves into trouble. Because if we run too far in one direction or the other, things get messy. If we go too far to the don't doubt side, we can come to believe that healing is guaranteed. I named it. I claimed it. It has to happen. And if it doesn't happen, then the problem is that either I or the sick person just don't have enough faith. And that may not be true at all. Because sometimes God's will does not align with our will. The other thing is that we put ourselves in the position of dictating to God what he must do. I prayed for healing, and now, God, you have to do that. God doesn't have to do anything. God will do what God will do. So if we err too far to the pray and don't doubt side, we are in trouble. But you know what we can do? We can go all the way to the other side, the thy will be done side. And what thy will be done becomes for a lot of Christians is a cop out. We say that we believe God can heal, and maybe we believe that theoretically, but the reality is we've come to a place where we don't actually believe that God is going to heal or do anything, and so thy will be done becomes a cover word for us to say when we really don't have any faith at all that God will act. And so we need both of these principles. We need to pray and believe God can do this. And yet we need to be able to say, and, but if God chooses another way, I still believe. We need to hold those things together. Now, at the end of verse 15 and verse 16, James touches on those times in life when people are ill due to their own actions. Now, it's really important. We do not believe that generally that illness is a punishment for sin. There have been people who have thought that. 
We do not believe that. However, we do know, all of us, that there are some illnesses that can be brought on by decisions that we make, by things that we do. Some, in, uh, some kinds of maladies can certainly be brought on by those things. So there are all kinds of unhealthy practices, habits that we can get caught up in. And in these cases, James calls us to pray as well. And notice he promises to forgive the sin because there's a sin involved in that. When we're bringing something bad onto ourselves, pray for them. There will be forgiveness of sin for whatever they've done that's led to this situation. James also calls for confession in verse 16. Confession is, on the face of it, about us owning our sin and taking responsibility for it. And we, we need to do that with God. That's why confession is this big thing in the Bible, because we like to sort of sidestep responsibility and point the finger in another place. But here James says something different. He says he urges us to confess to one another. Now, we don't always need to do that. We can confess directly to God, and I think much of the time that's probably what we should do. But I think we need to remember that in this case, right here, remember that James is talking about specifically healing of illness and trouble that is the result of sin. And in my experience, that particular kind of healing often only comes with the support and accountability of others whether it's sobriety or quitting smoking or eating better, there are things like that that we really only seem most of the time to triumph over with God's help and the help of people around us and confessing that to people. Hey, I'm struggling with this and I need your help to do better is I think often opens the door to extra support and power for us to receive God's blessing in that situation. Now, in the last part of verse 16, James makes an important statement when it comes to prayer. Anyone who thinks about prayer, wants to learn about prayer, should be aware of this statement. It says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That's an incredible promise that the scripture offers us, that the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. And as powerful as that statement is, I also know that it's very troubling to a lot of people. And the first reason it's troubling is that there are people who struggle with the reality. And they'll say, is prayer really powerful? I know the scripture says it is, but is it? I don't know if I can wrap my mind around that, if I can, if I can believe that given most of the time the ups and downs I've experienced in my life. And I think the way that we often respond to someone saying, is prayer really powerful, is that we tend to try to prove that it is by telling stories about times that prayer, quote, worked. You know what I mean? And there's nothing wrong with that. That's good information. The problem is, for every one of those stories, there's a story when we prayed and we did not receive the outcome that we prayed for. And so I think people struggle and understand why with making sense of that. And what I want to do in this moment, rather than, you know, being a theologian, uh, which I try to do, is I'd really rather speak to you about my own experience at struggling with this. I have many times experienced the power of prayer in my own life. And, and I've got stories about that, but, but I'm not going to tell you those stories, right? Because we just said, you know, stories only get us so far. I want to tell you three things that I personally look to 
that help me remember that prayer is powerful. And the first one is, is so simple, and it's this. I trust God's word, and God's word says that prayer is powerful. And I know that that may sound simplistic to some of us here, but to me, it's actually not, because the question is about faith. Do you believe or not? That's what it's about. Do I believe, do I put my faith in God that prayer is real and powerful or do I not believe and I choose to believe because God's word says that it's powerful and effective and I stand, for me, I stand on that promise. Now, number two is this. In my life of the people I've known and the people that I know of through scripture and history, Every single one of the people that I would put kind of in an elite category as maybe the most holy people that I've ever known or known of, every one of them believed that prayer was powerful. Every single one of those people that I would put on that high pedestal, not that we should put people on pedestals, but but on that high platform of of spirituality, every single one of them believed that prayer was powerful. And I got to tell you, I trust those people whom I see as kind of spiritual giants. I trust that they knew and know what they're talking about. And again, this is just how I make sense of these things. And the last one is this, and this one's kind of simple and and kind of amazing in a way. Did you know there's actual scientific data that says that faith and prayer work? That people, particularly people who are sick, if they have faith and they pray or are prayed for, they tend to heal faster and often experience health benefits. That's documented. Now, doctors have different ways of responding to that data. Some of it call it spiritual coping, (laughs) you you know, because they're afraid to get too religious. But no one disputes the data. So there's actual real-world data that supports the idea that prayer makes a difference. Now, that's one reason that people struggle with this verse. Is prayer really powerful? But I know the other one too, don't you? There are some people who look at this verse and they say, prayer may be powerful for a righteous person, but not me. Because they don't see themselves as righteous. And I want us to be really careful not to get tripped up by that word here. Because righteous does not mean perfect. And that is not how James is using it. James isn't talking about being totally righteous. Nobody is totally righteous. You're not totally righteous. I'm not totally righteous. What he means is that prayer is powerful when it comes out of a life of faith. When it's coming from people who are choosing to live that faith, seeking to be righteous each day instead of just talking about it. That's the big difference. Faith in practice and in action or just some nice words that we say on Sunday. The righteous person is still a work in progress. Every one of us is a work in progress. But here's the thing. A righteous person is a person who's still in progress, but they are on the right road. They are on the road to righteousness. They're not all the way there yet, but they are on that right path. And that is what James is talking about here when he talks about prayer. Now, verses 17 and 18, James offers an example. And it's important to remember that the people James was writing to were Jewish 
Christians. And so what James does here is he lists up one of the great heroes of the Jewish faith, Elijah, the prophet, maybe, maybe the greatest prophet. And he reminds them that Elijah was a human being just like us. And that when he prayed, amazing things happened. Now, maybe you could argue he was a great prophet and I'm not a great prophet. And when he prayed, it stopped raining. And when he prayed again, it started raining. And, and maybe, maybe that kind of thing doesn't happen for me. But I don't think that's the point that James is making. I think the point that James is making is that Elijah was just a human being, just a man, a man of great faith, but just a man. And that if he could pray with that kind of power, we can pray with power too. That is the promise. So the final two verses, James closes by urging us to look out for one another. And this too, in part, we do by praying for one another. Although James doesn't specifically say that, I think that's partially what he's got in mind here. He says that if anyone wanders from the faith, we should go after them and seek to bring them back. And if we're able, they'll be brought back under the grace that saves and covers sin. But you know, the reality is that sometimes, as much as we want to do something, sometimes there's nothing we can do, right? Sometimes we're just not in the location or we've spent all our capital, and there's nothing more that we can do or say, but we can always pray. And even when there is something we can do, probably still the best thing we can do is to pray for a person who's wandered in faith. And so I want us to hold on to that promise as well. I'll close with this. So once upon a time, there was a young man who approached the foreman of a logging company, and he was looking for a job. And the foreman said, well, we'll see if you can have a job. Show me what you can do. So the young man stepped up, and he uh, felled this giant tree, and it was pretty impressive. So the foreman said, all right, show up on Monday, and we'll give it a trial run and see how it goes. So the young man did. He showed up, and he worked Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. At the end of the day on uh, Wednesday, the foreman said, um, well, look, tomorrow on your way out, you can pick up your paycheck. And the young man was puzzled by that. He said, don't we get paid on Fridays? Tomorrow is Thursday. He said, yeah, but tomorrow's going to be your last day. And the young man was shocked. He was like, well, what's the reason? And the foreman said, well, you know, you started out like a superstar. Day one, you were, you were number one. But by the time, uh, the end of today, you're falling way behind every other of our lumberjacks out there. And the young man was so puzzled by this. And, and he began to explain to the foreman, I don't understand how it can be. I, I get in before anyone else. I leave later than anyone else. I don't take any of my coffee breaks. I'm really trying here. And the foreman could kind of sense the honesty in his voice. And, and even he was a little puzzled for a moment because that seemed to be true to what the young man was saying. And then he thought for a moment. And he said to the young man, have you been sharpening your axe? And the young man replied, no, sir. I've been working too hard to take the time to do that. And that's the moral of the story. So how about you? Have you been too busy to sharpen your axe, your prayer life? Remember how Calvin said that prayer is the chief exercise of our faith by which we daily receive God's benefits. 
It's the main way we're to live out this faith. It's the number one thing that we can do to build our relationship with God. And I want to just give you one piece of advice. If you're feeling like you've never really gotten your prayer life started, or if you feel like at some point your prayer life crashed and burned, I want to give you one piece of advice, and it's this. Start small and regular. What we tend to do is we tend to say, all right, I'm going to have a prayer life, or I'm going to rebuild my prayer life, and tomorrow I'm going to pray for 23 hours. Or two hours, or even an hour. We set this big old goal, and we're not able to keep it up usually. And I think prayer is like a spiritual muscle that we have to flex. So I would advise you to start small and regular. And when I was a youth pastor for 20 years, I used to tell kids, start with like two minutes a day. Just wake up in the morning and say, for two minutes, I'm going to pray. And once you're doing that every day, stretch it out to a whopping five minutes you know, and you might know where the right starting place for you is, 20 minutes, 15 minutes. I don't know what it is, but start small and regular because building the habit and building up that spiritual muscle is more important than amount of time at first. And really there is no magic amount of time. You know, there's nowhere in the Bible that it says, wow, if you pray for an hour a day, you are holy like Paul. It just doesn't say that. So start small and regular. Because prayer is the thing that gives our faith a sharp edge. Without prayer, the duller our faith will become, no matter how hard we try. Trying is not enough. We need to take the time to stay sharp in our faith with prayer every day. We need to try not to forget the hyphen that can crash us spiritually or maybe mean that we never get our spiritual life off the ground. So may we be people who pray, and may we be regular people who have real faith.